Please be advised that the content in the Grave Tales podcast series is suitable for adults only. You're with Chris Adams and Helen Goltz for the Grave Tales series podcast. Today's feature story is from Grave Tales True Crime Volume 1, The Murder of Chrissy Venn. On a Sunday afternoon in February 1921, 13-year-old Chrissy Venn left home to run an errand for her mother. She never returned. Two days later, Chrissy's body was found in a hollowed-out stump three and a half metres off the ground. No one was ever charged for her murder, but did a killer walk free or was the wrong man prosecuted? So what's the background to this? Yeah, this is a tragic little story. And I think the most amazing thing about the story is actually the court case. Mm-hmm. In a nutshell, Chrissy was a big girl for 13. She was 5 foot 4 or 164 centimetres. And according to the man accused of her murder, over 8 stone. So she had the development of a woman. But Chrissy Venn was 13. The Sunday afternoon, 27th of February 1921, she went to run an errand for her mother. And she had to go and get some groceries at the village, which was about six and a half k's away or four miles from mm. home. Now, that probably sounds a lot, but it wasn't in those days where you'd walk that yep. to run an errand. Yep. So it was just after five, and last light wasn't until 8.30. 8.30 came and went, and Chrissy wasn't home. And then nine o'clock passed, and then Chrissy's mother, Eva, began to panic as she would, and she contacted the police to report her daughter missing. Okay. The hours ticked by all night. No sign of Chrissy. The next morning, a search party went out. So this was a pretty small community, so presumably everybody went out looking. Absolutely. Everybody was out doing it. And all day, calling her name, covering the route she would have taken, every available person from the town participated, including the soon-to-be-accused killer. But they didn't find her that day. So again, all night, poor Chrissy's mother, Eva, had to wait and worry. And on Tuesday morning, the 1st of March, she was found dead, murdered. And her body was found in a hollowed stump about three and a half metres or 12 feet above the ground, lying atop her basket. So in the language of the day, which was reported in the newspapers, it said that she was outraged and that the violation precedes suffocation. And so translate that into modern language for us. Yeah, in today's speaks, she was raped and murdered. And the anguish, as you can imagine, and the anger in that small community was rife, as it would be today. So what do we know about what people might have seen, her last movements on that Sunday afternoon? Yeah, well, it was to Chrissy's advantage that she was known. It was a small town, so she was seen and people knew her. So police began piecing it together. There was a lad called Robert Mackay, 17, who lived on Allison Road, who saw Chrissy on his return home after about 5pm. She was in her doorway and called out hello to him. Mm -hmm. Then Chrissy's mother confirmed that she left about that time. And there was another man, Charles Purton, who was ploughing his land, who saw her then pass along the road. Then there were two brothers, the Herbst brothers, who were working in a field and they heard a scream and they said they stopped to listen but then they didn't hear anything else so they couldn't really leave their work and there was no other sound so they just resumed working. And later their father would say in court that yes, his son mentioned that scream to them. But it was a really lonely road. It was called Dead Horse Gully and it was a deserted road. Other people on the road were Miss Purton and a Mr Kennedy. They passed the spot about 20 minutes after that time. Mm-hmm. And then no one else was seen to have passed along the road around that time. So she was seen at a house. She was seen leaving the house. There was a potential scream heard and that was it. They didn't mess around in those days. I see that they started the inquest the very next day. That's right. So Chrissy's body was found on the Tuesday and the Wednesday was the inquest. The coroner was Mr H.A. Nichols delivering his report and Detective Harmon, Superintendent Griffiths of Burnie and Sergeant Tonkinson were on the job. They presented what they had 
and then they sought an adjournment until 10th of March to do more investigating. But at the close of the inquest that day, they released Christie's body for the funeral, which took place at 6pm that day that as well. That same day. Yeah. That must have been an emotional time in the little township or in the, yeah. in the community. Yeah. They said that there was a huge gathering of people and the children attending the state school where she went, joined in and formed a procession, many of them carrying wreaths. 6pm funeral, unusual, isn't it? Well, I suppose they still had two and a half hours of light. Yeah. So, and in those days, the storing of bodies probably wasn't that easy or hygienic. That's true. Um, so they tended to be fairly quick. What did the police know at that stage? What were they now working on? Yeah, well, Detective Harmon had some interesting theories. He believed that the murderer was actually waiting for a victim. It could have been anyone, according to Detective Harmon. He then came back the next day, put Chrissy's body in the stump. When she was removed from the stump, parts of her were bare and a piece of hay band wire, about one foot in length or 30 centimetres, was twisted tightly around her neck. Now, later on, they would say that piece of wire was actually used to drag her up into that tree stump because it was about three and a half metres up. That's a massive effort. I mean, that would take someone very, very strong or more than one person to do that. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? And she was a sizable girl. A bottle cap and underclothing were in the bottom of the stump the front of Chrissy's dress and a brooch were found stuffed into her mouth and possibly to silence her. And they yeah. think that might have been what she suffocated on during the assault. So who became the suspects in this case? Well, interesting. One of the search party, a local man that Chrissy was said to be scared of, came under suspicion. A man by the name of George William King. Now, interesting, he was a former constable. He was 36, married with a child, and he worked at a farm on the road where Chrissy passed, mm-hmm. about half a mile just short of a kilometre from where she was actually believed to be murdered. He was described as tall, thinly built, powerful frame, and about six foot four or 195 centimetres. He had hair neatly brushed, face closely shaved, and he was bright and intelligent. And so where was he when this happened? On the day that Chrissy went missing, he was in the Herps paddock hoeing potatoes, the same area where those two Herps boys had heard a scream. Mm. He admitted he was in sight of Allison Road, which is where she walked down, and he knocked off work, crossed the Herps paddock, just above the gate where the crime was committed, he went across a pea paddock and straight home, according to him. Okay. Interestingly, he was seen at 3.30pm when he left work. Now, she left home at 5. Yeah. And he went via the bush to his home, but not a living soul other than the member of his own family saw him till 8 o'clock in the evening. Okay, so what did the police know about this guy and what did they find out when they talked to him? Well, he had scratches on his face and hands, but he said that was from skylarking with his wife when they were both trying to see who could get kisses from their little girl. But it's interesting that former comment by the detective that this person was waiting for a victim because if he left work at 3.30 and Chrissy didn't leave home till 5, then he may have just been hanging around that road for whatever reason, waiting for a victim. He had cuts on the back of the hand, which he said was from participating in the search party. He agreed with consent to have his hands photographed. He was a cop, he knows a drill. And he was the only person in the vicinity without a solid alibi at the estimated time of Chrissy's murder. Interesting, isn't it, that he said that he hurt his hand when he was part of the search party and Mm. that he actually joined in looking, helping them to try and find... And gee, that happens in a lot of cases like this. Yeah. person does the murder and then goes helping the parents find the kid. Mm. Um, and I wonder what it was like in the little community there. I did a story once on a guy who killed a little girl in a country town and then helped the locals look for her body. Mm. Um, and everybody in the town knew who it was, but they couldn't prove it because they didn't have the body. Mm. And just the tension in the place was amazing. That was at North Queensland, wasn't no, it? No, it was at Roma. 
Oh, yeah, right. oh how horrendous. Stacey Ann Tracy. And when he was on the search party, were they suspicious of him then? Well, yeah, because, I mean, he had come out of jail on a life sentence for doing exactly the same thing in Townsville. He murdered a little girl, then again helped the parents uh, search for her. He was convicted of murder for that, sent to jail, but he'd been released and went to live in Roma. Everybody was aware of his background, and that... Uh, given you know what had happened, uh, yeah. it was just enough to make them suspicious of him. Turned out to be exactly right. If you're ever going to take justice into your own hands. Yeah. Anyway, back to Chris. Yeah. So this guy was part of the search party. We know that he claimed to have left and gone home before all this happened. Yeah, and all the cuts and bruises and whatever on him, he said, were from playing with his own child and from being in the search party. But he stayed on the police radar, this king. Meanwhile, Detective Harmon had found some hair similar to Chrissy's near the Herps Gate. They scoured the tree from the bottom of the cavity but, but found nothing that would help them to find the assailant. I tell you what, though, this is one of those cases that you just know today with DNA would be wrapped up in about 15 minutes, wouldn't yeah. it? Yeah, it would, especially as they exhumed the body to mm. try and find out if there's anything under the fingernails. Yeah. Uh, but wouldn't have the technology that we do today. Now, I think one of the most interesting things about this tragedy was the actual coronial inquiry, which was held in March. It's always amazing to read old court files and what's said and what's allowed to be said. Mm. And Detective Harmon knew his stuff. For nearly four hours, he gave voluminous evidence rarely being at fault with the details, according to the newspaper at the time, and had a masterly grip of the case and a remarkable retentive memory. If you were Mr King, you'd be a little bit worried. Yeah, this presumably was to determine whether King should go to trial or not. That's exactly right. And what's interesting is, I love the speak of the day. The coroner warned he'd be giving very detailed medical evidence and he hoped the women would stay away during his testimony. He went as far as to say... If they persisted in attending, I would be compelled to express the opinion that they would not be able to call themselves ladies. Oh, great. <laughs> Outrageous. It'd be horrendous to hear that testimony. I understand oh, what he's absolutely. saying. And he's obviously trying to protect the weaker sex. Yes. But I don't think that was a deterrence to attendance because they didn't stay away. And he told the court that young Chrissy had been attacked and violated after a violent struggle and that it was most likely her death was a result of being suffocated by the gag placed in her mouth by her attacker when she uttered the piercing scream which was heard by the Herps boys while ploughing in that field some distance off. So who did King have giving evidence for him, as it were? He was fortunate he had a loyal wife. She was called to give evidence. Mrs King was described in the newspaper of the day as a well-dressed woman of ladylike bearing and prepossessing appearance who was deeply affected and was frequently convulsed. So I imagine she was quite traumatised during the whole thing herself. She supported her husband's evidence. She was quick to say that her husband was with her for the afternoon, but then Constable Brown was quick to remind her that she had, first of all, said she hadn't seen him till after 8 o'clock. But what was really interesting is that it was really a battle for the jury because two hours after they retired to consider the verdict, the foreman came back out and asked the coroner if there was any middle course for them in reaching a conclusion other than finding a verdict of murder against the accused or one against some person or persons unknown. The coroner said no. They then took some more time to consider this, the jury, and returned with the verdict that they felt there was enough evidence for King to stand trial. But curiously, the coroner thought that that was peculiar and believed that the jury got it wrong. Their verdict seemed to imply that they had some doubt that they were leaving it to the authorities to decide as to whether they would prosecute further. That's right. It was a very odd case. So the coroner then adjourned the inquiry and he conferred with the Attorney General. When the inquiry resumed, he requested that they reconsider again and if they couldn't agree unanimously on a verdict, he mm-hmm. dismissed the jury. So the jury went to discuss their verdict again and returned over an hour later and read the following statement. We find that the deceased, Chrissy Venn, was willfully murdered on Allison Road, North Motton, 
on February 26, 1921, by some person or persons unknown. Okay, and so then the Attorney General moved and ascertained that King be brought before the police magistrate in Alverston for a magisterial investigation on the capital charge connected with the murder of Chrissy Bean. Yeah, which is very unusual. It's a strange way to do it all. Yeah, it was. But Chrissy was on Wednesday, 2nd of March, and she was now exhumed with attention given to the fingernails. Mm. But the results of this would not assist the family. So the magisterial investigation commenced in early April, and the public was excluded. Chrissy's mum, Mrs Eva Dawes, she was formerly then, but she remarried, yep. was the first witness. She was absolutely distraught as Chrissy's basket and other personal items were shown. She became quite hysterical and cried, don't show them to me. There was another emotional outburst from Eva when she pointed the finger at the accused and the Doc King and called out, you murdered my girl, which caused a bit of a sensation. But the counsel for King, for the defence, said he did not know how his client could be committed for the crime when there was absolutely no evidence to connect the accused man with the crime. Yeah, went on to point out that the prosecution virtually asked the accused man to to prove himself guilty. Mm. They put forward no theory. They had disclosed no motive. This, they said, was fuelled by the possibility that as King was a former policeman, the relationship between him and the investigating officer, Fred Harmon, was acrimonious. Mm. So they were saying, look, what do you got? After listening to all the evidence, the police magistrate said that King should be placed on trial, committed him to the next sitting of the Supreme Court in Launceston. But Albert Ogilvie, who was his solicitor, who went on, I think, to be the Premier of Tasmania. Mm. He was a cluey. And so the first thing he did mm. was he asked for the trial to be shifted to Hobart. Yeah, and there's a clever move just to move it away from the hotbed of emotionalism there. Yeah. King got himself the best solicitor in Tasmania, probably. Mm. And he's an ex-cop himself, so he knows the drill. He's savvy. So it began again with Chrissy's horrendous murder unfolding and revealed to the jury. Now, the public was admitted, but there's only a small number able to fit into the courtroom compared to outside. So Chrissy's mum, Eva, broke down and was spared from further examination, thank God. And the jury was actually taken to the scene of the crime in North Morton. Yeah, well, that happens a bit sometimes with these types of crimes, just especially when there's something unusual mm. there, like the place where she was found, three mm. and a half metres up a stump of a tree. Yeah. The scratches on King's hand got a lot of attention, of course, but again, they couldn't go as far as to say that they were from her fingernails, but they were done by a sharp or blunt instrument. They'd examined Chrissy's fingernails. It was 36 days afterwards when they exhumed her to do that and they couldn't get any evidence. The doctor agreed that if the wound on King's hand had been caused by the falling on a stone while he was in the search party, it would have bled freely. And one of the Herps brothers said that they saw him bleeding freely. So that helped his case. So the summation of all this took place on Friday the 12th of August 1921, which was six months after her murder. What happened next? Well, the jury retired at 3pm to consider its verdict. Three hours and 15 minutes later, they had a question for his honour, which related to the vehicles on the road that day. His honour dismissed the question and suggested, given that they now heard all the evidence, to determine a verdict of guilty or not guilty. So in other words, get to it. At 8.25 that night, they informed his honour there was no chance of them agreeing on a verdict. But legally, they were required to deliberate for six hours, so they returned to discuss the matter again until 9pm. At 9.10, they surfaced and delivered a verdict of not guilty. (laughs) Now, George William King was acquitted of the murder. The cheer went up from the crowd outside, so he obviously had his supporters. And the Advocate newspaper described his release as he walked from Hobart Jail into God's moonlight and fresh air with a charge of murder hanging over his head. Hanging being the operative word. Mm. He may have been innocent. He may have been guilty, we don't know, but he certainly didn't pay for it. In the book In Tasmania Adventures at the End of the World, released in 2011 by author Nicholas Shakespeare, he ventured to suggest a number of other potential suspects. There was an itinerant worker, Patrick Williams, and a neighbour's suggestion that he wouldn't want to be in Jack 
Herbst shoes, the same Jack Herbst who heard Chrissy scream, which was interesting. He also noted that King's solicitor, A.G. Ogilvie, thought the testimony of a young illiterate labourer by the name of Charles Purton or Chick was very weak, contradictory, questionable and suspicious. That's a quote. Mm. He had no doubt that Purton, not King, ought to be standing in the dock. And Purton was one of the witnesses who saw Chrissy passing at 5pm. So there's all these other sort of suspects, but I don't know whether there's any investigation of them or whether the detective literally just thought he had his man and Harmon went for King. Yeah. And so anything happened after this or was this just the end of it? That was the end of it. After King's release at a Devonport Council meeting, Councillor Leary called it a disgrace to the country to have such a crime unpunished. But to this day, no one's ever been charged with Chrissy's murder or rape. So what became of, well, Chrissy's father, George Venn, was never on the scene. Her parents were divorced and Eva had remarried Frances Dawes and had one daughter who's a stepsister for Chrissy. One year after Chrissy's death, Frances Dawes applied for divorce on the grounds of adultery that Eva was having an affair. It was granted and Chrissy's mother married the man she was having the affair with, Llewellyn Warden, and had two more children. She went on to live until 1952 and died aged 71. She's buried in Ulverston General Cemetery. Mm-hmm. Albert George Ogilvie, which was George King's solicitor, who got him off, became Premier of Tasmania, as we said, and served for five years from 1934 until his sudden death on 10th of June 1939. And the jury, because of the length of their service, were exempt from jury duty for five years. And so they should have been. So where do we find Chrissy's headstone, if you want to pay your respects? Oh, Chrissy's headstone was donated by public subscription and bears the words, Suffer Little Children. You'll find it in North Motton Methodist Cemetery. It's Grave 599. Grave Tales feature Grave. And for today's grave of the episode, back to the end of World War One, when troops were returning home from Europe and a little boy by the name of Hector Vasily. Hector lived in South Brisbane. His parents ran an oyster bar in Melbourne Street. You can still see Melbourne Street. The oyster bar's long gone by now. But Hector and his mates used to gather to welcome home, if you like, the soldiers who'd come across the Victoria Bridge in cars being taken to the repatriation hospital and they'd give them lollies and cigarettes uh, that they'd save their money to buy. But the return diggers procession that took place on the 9th of June led to one of the most tragic stories amongst those people who now lie in Tawong Cemetery where Hector is. On this particular morning, as the cars came across the bridge, one of them had to swerve to stop to avoid the car in front which stopped very quickly and it hit young Hector and killed him. Now, on the pylon of the bridge, which was part of the bridge then, of course, is not anymore, there is a memorial to Hector. You can go and see that. And also, Hector's grave is in Tawong Cemetery. It's very hard to find for a long time. In fact, the headstone had almost completely gone until the Greek community stepped in and replaced it with one that you can now find. To remember that little boy. Yeah, Hector. And you'll find him in Tawong Cemetery, Brisbane. Location section 10, 3824. If you have enjoyed today's episode of Grave Tales, please rate, review and subscribe by pressing the Follow Us button. You've been listening to a story from Grave Tales, the series, available in paperback, ebook, and select titles on audiobook. Music by Kai Engels. Purchase your copy at gravetales.com.au or from all good bookstores, Booktopia or Amazon. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram or on our website. Check out our YouTube channel as well.